Good evening and welcome. I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. On the News Hour tonight, we report from the front lines in Ukraine as Russia launches new offensives ahead of the invasion's one year mark. Senator Elizabeth Warren weighs in on the economy, immigration, and her plan to shore up Social Security. If we simply said that you're going to pay Social Security on all of your income, even if you are a billionaire, um, we can extend the life of Social Security to 2095. And Judy Woodruff begins her series, America at a Crossroads, looking at some of the country's political divisions. Good evening and welcome to the News Hour. President Biden wrapped up his four-day trip to Poland and Ukraine as we near the anniversary of Russia's invasion. Mr. Biden called Russian President Vladimir Putin's decision to suspend participation in the nuclear arms control treaty a, quote, big mistake. At a meeting with Eastern European leaders in Warsaw, the president reiterated U.S. support for Ukraine and NATO allies. It's even more important that we continue to stand together. You know better than anyone what's at stake in this conflict, not just for Ukraine, but for the freedom of democracies throughout Europe and around the world. Meanwhile, in Russia, President Putin attended a patriotic rally and urged his country to support Russian troops in Ukraine. He also held talks with China's top diplomat and Russia's foreign minister in Moscow to underscore deepening ties between the two nations. And in the day's other headlines, a massive winter storm is bearing down on a huge swath of the western and northern U.S. It's threatening historic snowfall, strong winds, and bitter cold temperatures. Today, it prompted the closure of hundreds of schools and the cancellation of more than 1,500 flights. John Yang has our report. Overnight in Utah, drivers faced treacherous roads and a deluge of snow on their windshields. It's part of a powerful storm system cutting across much of the continental United States. This morning, more than 50 million Americans were under winter weather advisories. In Minnesota, the National Guard geared up for what could be nearly two feet of snow. We are bracing for what is likely to be one of the largest snowstorms in Minnesota history. St. Paul Mayor Melvin Carter warned residents to stay home and plan ahead. Our ask to all residents is that you prepare now. That means limiting non-essential travel and working from home whenever possible. It means making sure that we have essential supplies, including food and medicine for the week. The storm left its mark on California, winds ripping down trees and power lines, cutting electricity to more than 100,000 people. Some are predicting record snowfall in the Golden State, even at lower elevations. UCLA climate scientist Daniel Swain. The widespread nature of the potential for sea level snow is unusual. It's almost a slam dunk. There will probably be snowflakes at sea level and significant snow, um, you know, even up at 1,000 feet. As the storm presses east, snow and ice are expected to hit New England tonight. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm John Yang. Prosecutors in California today charged the man suspected of killing a Roman Catholic bishop with murder. Auxiliary Bishop David O'Connell was shot to death Saturday in his home east of Los Angeles. The suspect, Carlos Medina, is the husband of O'Connell's housekeeper. Authorities say they're working to identify the motive. If convicted, Medina could face life in prison. Palestinian officials say a rare daytime Israeli army raid killed at least 10 Palestinians and wounded more than 100 others. It happened in Nablus, in the northern-occupied West Bank. The Israeli military said the operation targeted three suspected militants wanted in several shootings. Palestinians pulled bodies out from under a building that was reduced to rubble. It was one of the bloodiest days there in nearly a year. Back in this country, the U.S. Supreme Court considered a second bid this week to hold social media companies accountable for what their users post online. The case raised questions about Twitter's role in the 2017 Islamic State attack on a Turkish nightclub. Justices appear to side with Twitter, casting doubt that the platform knowingly provided, quote, substantial assistance to an act of terrorism. 
a daughter of the late civil rights leader Malcolm X has filed notice that she intends to sue the FBI, the CIA, and other government agencies for $100 million for the wrongful death of her father. Ilyasa Shabazz says new information has come to light that alleges a conspiracy and a cover-up in her father's assassination. For years, our family has fought for the truth to come to light concerning his murder. And we'd like our father to receive the justice that he deserves. The announcement came yesterday on the anniversary of Malcolm X's 1965 assassination. A preview of the new Broadway revival of the musical Parade about a Jewish man falsely accused of murder opened last night to anti-Semitic protests. The protesters held banners and harassed theatergoers outside ahead of the performance. In a statement, the producers of Parade said, quote, if there is any remaining doubt out there about the urgency of telling this story in this moment in history, the vileness on display last night should put it to rest. And stocks were mixed on Wall Street today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 84 points to close at 33,045. The Nasdaq rose 15 points and the S&P 500 shed six. Still to come on the PBS NewsHour, a new poll gives insights into the political headwinds the 2024 presidential contenders could face. A political dissident freed from Nicaragua discusses his country's slide toward authoritarianism. And Judy Woodruff looks at the stark political divisions across the country. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. As we approach the one-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, a look at the ground war and the front lines. Ukraine and the U.S. say Russian forces have launched offensives in three areas of Ukraine's eastern Donbass region. With support from the Pulitzer Center, Nick Schifrin and videographer Eric O'Connor visited all three parts of the front, starting at one of the most southern points on the front line, Novosilka. And a warning, some images in this story are disturbing. The road to Ukraine's first tank brigade frontline position is bumpy and tense. We're escorted by a sergeant who tells us to stay low and move fast. Okay, let's go. Trees provide the best cover. Our guide calls ahead about our position using code words. They refer to us as ants. And so we go marching in, single file, on the same path Ukrainian soldiers take. Past the craters, the Russian line is only a mile and a half away. We've just heard an explosion nearby, so we're just taking a little cover. Right now we're trying to walk along the tree line so that we're not too visible we're trying to get to these Ukrainian trenches down the road here. Over, Den. How are you? Trees may conceal, but don't protect from the incoming. The trench is the safest defense. Ukraine's front line is 700 miles long. This trench, just one small section, a thousand feet, eight feet high, and where this unit has deployed for three and a half months. Ehord, the platoon commander. He joined the military in 2014 after the initial Russian invasion. He was recalled a year ago this week. They're trying to attack our direction and to push through our defenses, and we're not letting them do that. We're holding our position. We're doing everything possible to not let this happen. Have they launched frontal assaults against these trenches? With small groups, three to four tanks and infantry. They're attacking with artillery, as you can hear. Their artillery is working. That's how they do it. Ukraine's infantry is tasked with the always vital, sometimes terrifying mission of holding the line. Not all of them have made it. We've had wounded. We've had killed. It's a difficult subject. I don't want to talk about it. Translate that. You don't want to talk about it. It's difficult to talk about. I don't want to talk about it. Any other questions? 
Ihor lives where he fights. He tries his best to keep out the cold. Everyone here seizes a quiet moment when they can. He has faith that Ukraine can win, but he predicts it will take years. The world should know that while we're fighting the enemy here, the world is safe. And the whole world should help us with everything they can and provide us with weapons to ensure this doesn't happen in their countries. We're capable of stopping the enemy here. Just give us the weapons. Tanks are this unit's primary weapon. The region is flat. For Kyiv to have any chance to push through Russian lines, it says it will need more modern tanks. But 26-year-old Yehor's T-64 tank was originally built in the 1970s. They are old, and because they are old, they break all the time. You don't have confidence that your tank is going to work tomorrow. For us to advance, we need new weaponry, because these tanks are twice as old as I am. Until new weapons arrive, all this unit can do is use its armor like it uses its trenches to hold the line against a larger Russian force. In order to destroy the enemy and be more effective in our offensive, we need heavy weapons. Without tanks, we're not doing anything right now. It's not easy to destroy a stationary firing position, even a machine gun. And Russia has a web of stationary positions. They still control 20% of Ukraine, and they've spent months digging in. Russian trenches, vehicle barriers, and tank traps fill Ukraine south and east. They run all the way up to the northern part of the Eastern Front, where we visited next. Russia controlled this land just a few months ago. So to prevent a Ukrainian counteroffensive, they mined the fields that we drove through. Which directions, the Russians? In front of us. The 103rd Brigade's mortar unit positions itself as close as possible to Russian troops and is deep into a forest. The more isolated, the harder to target. The commander is a 46-year-old whose call sign is Kalina, a berry on Ukraine's coat of arms. The front line here hasn't moved an inch since they arrived nine months ago. Do you have the weapons you need to be able to fight effectively? No, we don't have enough weapons. We don't have a large enough caliber. The largest that we keep is 82 millimeters, and we need at least 120 millimeters. We keep telling our commanders about this, but right now, no one is providing those to us. They've been fighting for one year, but that doesn't mean it feels normal. Their patch is the Lviv Lion, Kalina's hometown in the country's far west. Did you think you'd still be here one year later? No, I've never thought I would spend so much time here. I'm not young, I'm not fit for the army. I thought they would just train me and let me go home. But it all happened in a very different way, and now we're here. They use drones to spot Russian targets, and then... 20 rounds in about three minutes. They adjust the mortar back to the original target and repeat. But they admit they're limited by the quantity and quality of their ammunition. And that means the best this unit can do as well is hold the line against the Russian troops they continue to target. The next day, we headed to the outskirts of Russia's primary goal, Bakhmut. U.S. officials downplay the city's importance and have raised with Ukraine falling back to higher ground to defend larger cities. But Ukraine calls Bakhmut a symbol of resistance and a gateway to the rest of Donetsk province. The city has been largely abandoned or destroyed. And the fighting has been fierce, targeting Russia's paramilitary Wagner Group. The U.S. assesses it has taken 30,000 casualties. Wagner's owner, who is close to Putin, posted this photo this morning, identifying the bodies as those killed just yesterday. The Ukrainian soldiers fighting for Bakhmut have witnessed some of the most brutal battles of the last year. They are sending their soldiers as cannon fodder. We target their equipment and their soldiers, but they keep coming and coming and keep dying and dying, and even then keep coming and coming. Alexander leads a 93rd Brigade artillery unit. There are other units with more advanced equipment, but the vast majority are like this one. Their self-propelled artillery is also from the 1970s. The brigade gave us this video from a surveillance drone of what it said was its artillery hitting its target. They and everyone here say 
Bakhmut is worth it. This place is strategically important, but first and foremost, this is our land. And every inch of our land is of the utmost importance, because people are dying for it. If we give up Bakhmut, we would be giving up so many lives of those who've been defending it for such a long time. Have you lost men? Have you lost friends? Yes. We all lost uh, friends. We all lost uh, We've all lost someone in this war and keep losing. That's how it goes. This is war. You can't do anything about it. But these are all losses that cannot be prevented. They just happen because people kill people. That's it. On the front lines, Ukraine knows the price it will continue to have to pay, how many men it will continue to lose. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Nick Schifrin, outside Bakhmut, Ukraine. With less than a year until the first primaries of the 2024 presidential contest, the battle lines are becoming clearer, and so is the field of candidates. Lisa Desjardins takes stock of where the race stands. That's right, Jeff. As President Biden readies a re-election campaign, potentially, his would-be Republican opponents are figuring out which voters could back them. It's the focus of a new PBS NewsHour NPR Marist poll. Domenico Montanaro is senior political editor and correspondent at NPR, and he's here to walk us through some of the results. It's great to see you again. Good to be back, Lisa. Let's start with Mr. Biden, who is considering his re-election campaign or not? What do these numbers say about him? <laughs> well, I think everyone widely expects yeah. that Biden is going to run for re-election. And I think that that's actually had a big um, you know, effect on Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents, who in this poll now, for the first time, are saying a majority saying that they feel like their best shot in 2024 is with Biden and not with someone else. You can see Biden's approval rating is now up to 46 percent, ticked up a bit after his State of the Union address. He's also up to 49 percent with registered voters. The 46% is the highest he's been in a year. The 49% is the highest he's been since the Afghan withdrawal. So good news for President Biden as he's heading into what's going to be uh, expected to be a, a campaign re-election. And how's he doing with independence? Well, so that's what his one big vulnerability still. You know, this is a group that he won in 2020. He's only got a 36% approval rating with independence. That is still a problem and a thing that the White House is going to be targeting, looking at. And it's why you heard in the State of the Union address a message that was so targeted seemingly to the center. Let's talk about the other presidential re-election candidate, of course, former President Donald Trump, who today was in East Palestine, Ohio, the site of that train derailment, of course. Uh, they're making a pitch saying he was trying to help out the community, talking about his criticisms of the Biden administration. What do these numbers tell us about President Trump? Well, you know, it's not as rosy a picture for uh, former President Trump. You know, he wants the job back to be president, but there are a whole lot of Republicans who are likely going to try to stop him from getting that job. And what this poll finds is that there's actually an appetite for uh, some other Republicans to try to get in because you can see 52% of Republicans said that they want someone else. They think someone else gives them the best chance to win. 42% say Trump, but that 52%, we're looking at. Uh, People looking at potentially someone like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. We're going to come back and talk about him in a minute, but I want to also note that there are other someone else's seeing this opening, <laughs> including last night we had a new Republican announce the candidacy on Fox News, Vivek Ramaswamy. He is a businessman. Here's what he had to say. We are in the middle of this national identity crisis, Tucker, where we have celebrated our diversity and our differences for so long that we forgot all of the ways we're really just the same as Americans bound by a common set of ideals that set this nation into motion 250 years ago. And that's why I'm proud to say tonight that I am running for United States president to revive those ideals in this country. Ohio businessman, founded a pharmaceutical company, an investment firm as well. Uh, he's running on what he says is anti-wokeism. He's using that kind of phrase. But I think a lot of folks, when they say someone else, at the top of that list from polling right now is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. What do we see about him in this poll? 
Right. And I think the, the biggest issue for Trump, when you look inside these numbers of people saying that they don't want him or don't think that he's the best fit for 2024, he's really struggling with white collar voters, people who make more than $50,000 a year, people who are college graduates. And these are all people who DeSantis is actually doing well with. When you look at Trump's numbers and DeSantis's numbers, it's like they're uh, mirror images of each other when you look inside their favorability ratings. You can see with voters without a college degree, uh, Trump does better. Uh, voters with college degrees, DeSantis does better. Less than $50,000 a year, Trump does better. More than $50,000 a year, DeSantis does better. And with those Republican-leaning independents, that's where Trump really struggles. He's at 50%, 57% favorability with that group. But really, the dislike of Trump is what's so much higher than for DeSantis. And DeSantis has a lot to prove. Look, this is very early. Uh, we have to say that there is room for a anti-Trump candidate who can appeal to those white-collar uh, workers. But the problem is, how many of them are going to get in? If they flood the zone, a multi-candidate environment is something that could ultimately help Trump because he does have a share of the pie. I used to say in 2016 that seems like it's made of titanium. Maybe the metal is melted a little bit, but uh, he still has a very sizable chunk of Republicans. And if a lot of other Republicans flood the zone, it could give Trump an easy path to nomination. Someone, someone getting attention as well, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. He was in Iowa today. He hasn't announced yet. But this poll does ask about someone who did announce, which is former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, and also someone who presumed is interested, <laughs> former Vice President Mike Pence. What, what do we say briefly about those two? Well, two things on each of them. Haley, the biggest issue for her is that 46% say that they're unsure about her. It means she's got a lot to prove. Pence, really not as well liked as either DeSantis or Trump, and that includes with white evangelical Christians who are mm. supposed to be Pence's base. Haley, more room to grow, though. We'll see what happens. Domenico Montanaro, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And our thanks to Lisa Desjardins. Tomorrow, we'll have more results from our poll, including views on some of the biggest issues facing Congress, like the debt limit and aid to Ukraine. And you can, of course, read more of the poll's findings on our website, pbs.org newshour. Consumer protection drove Elizabeth Warren's academic work, launched her entrance into politics, and served as a central plank in her 2020 run for president. In President Biden's State of the Union address earlier this month, he pledged to tackle something long on Warren's issue list, junk fees. She joins me now to discuss that effort and if these priorities can become policies in a divided Congress. Senator Warren, welcome back, and thanks for joining us. Before we get to junk fees, I just want to ask you about a little bit of news on the immigration front this week, which was yesterday the Biden administration proposed a new rule that critics say is basically a revival of President Trump's so-called transit ban, which will bar people from seeking asylum if they've come through another country before arriving at the southern border. As you know, you opposed that policy under President Trump. You said it goes against America's laws and our moral commitment. Do you feel the same way today? So, look, I am always concerned when uh, we are not opening ourselves uh, and staying in line both with federal law and with our moral responsibilities. But I also want to underscore the other part of this, that the president and his administration are clearly looking for alternative ways to deal with people who want to come to the United States and who are looking for sanctuary here. Uh, this program is one way to try to do that, to make sure that people don't have to take a long, expensive, dangerous trip in order to ask for help. Let's face it. The Bottom line is, Congress needs to put in place comprehensive immigration reform. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, the president is trying to meet our responsibilities um, and to do it through administrative action. And I'm glad that they're out there trying different parts. I just want to make sure that we continue to live up to our moral responsibilities and international law. Well, to that point, Senator Warren, critics would say this does not live up to the promise of a safe, orderly, and humane practice. And in fact, these are the same versions of policies that Mr. Trump put into place. Do you disagree with that? Well, this is why I said I am concerned. If the point here is to bar people from being able to apply for help that international law says they can apply for, then that would be a terrible mistake for our country. I want to see us do 
meet our moral responsibilities and our, our responsibilities under international law, but to try to do it in ways that do not force people to take long, dangerous, expensive trips where they put themselves and their children at risk. And that's what the president, I think, is trying to find that line. It would be better if Congress were willing to take that on. But so far, the Republicans have blocked us on that. I do want to ask you about junk fees, which we know President Biden raised in his State of the Union address. There does seem to be shared bipartisan frustration over things like families having to pay more for to, to fly together, have seats together, or paying too much for Taylor Swift concert tickets. Is there a bill, though? That's the question. Is there a bill, and can it get through a divided Congress? Well, so I'm going to push back on this just a little bit. I'm not sure we need a bill for much of this. I want to applaud the agencies that are starting to step up in this area. Uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has stepped up and said, what do you mean you're charging $30 for a late credit card fee uh, or credit card payment? Uh, there's not much additional risk associated with that. I think that should be down around $8. Uh, how it is that the banking regulators are stepping up and pressure from Congress so that they are reducing the charges on check overdrafts. Uh, Department of Transportation, come on, step up on this idea of charging fees for families to be able to sit together. So, so I want to start with the notion that a lot of these junk fees basically fit under the idea that there's one advertised price for the service or for the good. Uh, same thing with hotels, right? Right. But because of the junk fees, it actually costs $5 more, $10 more, $25 more. Senator, you and uh, Senator Bernie Sanders just proposed a plan to shore up Social Security, raising the top rate of both income tax and capital gains tax for only people making more than $250,000 a year. There's another argument here. People say, why not just raise the retirement age? People are living a lot longer than they used to. What do you make of that? Well, you know, every time I hear somebody say, just raise the retirement age, I think to myself, boy, there's somebody who didn't work construction for all of their life. There's somebody who didn't have to pick up little kids uh, as a kindergarten teacher or a preschool teacher. There's somebody who didn't work as a nurse all their life, helping patients in and out of bed and helping roll people over. In other words, just because people are living longer does not mean that you can still do those hard jobs at 65, 70, 75. But also think of it this way. If we simply said that you're gonna pay social security on all of your income, even if you are a billionaire, um, we can extend the life of Social Security to 2095. Plus, we can increase Social Security payments by $200 a month. I mean, look, bottom line is this is math and values. And the math is that if we simply bring in a little more revenue, we can actually make the Social Security system work on through the rest of this century. But it's also about values, how we're gonna do that. Is it more important that we protect the wealthy and the well-connected so that they don't have to pay taxes on their million-dollar incomes, multi-million-dollar incomes? Well, Senator, what about that? Or pardon the interruption, or what about that? What about eliminating the benefit for people of higher incomes? Would you support that? But why, why eliminate the benefit? Why not just have people pay taxes? That, that's the notion of a tax system in the United States. And that is, as your income goes up, you pay more in taxes. Believe me, they'll still be earning a whole lot more, but pay Social Security taxes on that as well. That way we don't have to increase taxes on America's middle class, on America's working families, and we don't have to cut benefits in fact, we can raise them. I want to ask one more question looking forward to next week because the Supreme Court's going to hear arguments on President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. It's a plan you really pushed to make happen. But if it struck down, millions of borrowers for the first time in nearly three years may have to start repayments on those loans. Is that something they should start preparing to do? Well, I have no doubt that the president has the legal authority to cancel this debt. Um, my concern is whether the Supreme Court is going to apply the law or they're going to play politics. You know, when Donald Trump was president, he canceled billions and billions and billions of dollars of interest rate payments that were due, canceled them, didn't defer them, 
canceled them. And not one Republican, not one court lifted a hand to say there's any problem. They said, of course, he's legally entitled to do this. The president of the United States now is also legally entitled under the law to cancel this debt. And keep in mind who's going to be helped by this. We now know that 90% of the people who are going to get help from this debt cancellation make $75,000 or less. It means that if this goes through, half of all Latinos are going to see all of their debt wiped out, and about a third of African Americans. People who worked hard, who 40% of them did not end up with a college diploma, but who got out there and tried. And the consequences of their having tried when they came from families that couldn't just afford to write a check in order to pay for college is that they are getting crushed by this debt. The president has designed a plan to help get people out from underneath that debt. The law lets him do that. I just hope the Supreme Court and the Republicans stay out of the way. Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts joining us tonight. Senator Warren, thank you as always for your time. Thank you. Earlier this month, Nicaragua exiled hundreds of political prisoners to the U.S. All of them and dozens of other Nicaraguans were stripped of their citizenship by a government that has become increasingly authoritarian. At Washington's Dulles Airport, a day of joy and a moment of relief and reunion. Juan Sebastian Tremoro is one of more than 200 Nicaraguan political prisoners freed earlier this month and flown to the U.S. I was sentenced to 13 years in, in prison without any, any proof. Nicaragua has been under U.S. sanctions for decades, but officials say the release was a unilateral decision by President Daniel Ortega. We are not asking for anything in return. It is a matter of honor and for them to take their mercenaries away. The people he calls American mercenaries include students, human rights defenders, and opposition leaders who were arrested for challenging his rule. They were released but forced into exile. The government revoked their citizenship and that of 94 more Nicaraguans who Ortega calls, quote, traitors to the motherland, including one of the country's best-known writers, Sergio Ramirez. This has no basis in any legal standards. It violates them. But we've received infinite solidarity from around the world. Once a close ally of President Ortega, Ramirez was a prominent figure in the 1979 Sandinista Revolution. He served as vice president during the 1980s in the first Sandinista government led by Ortega, but broke with him in the 1990s over his excessive grip on power. What I remember is a shared leadership in the revolution to create a common project for the country. That project can be judged either way today, but it was a project. And that's what Nicaragua is missing now. Nicaragua was at war with the Contras, a U.S.-backed rebel group that fought to eradicate communism when Ortega came to power in 1984. He was then defeated in 1990 by opposition candidate Violeta Chamorro, another close ally who had defected from the Sandinista party. You see um, defections after defections. Cynthia Arnson is a distinguished fellow with the Woodrow Wilson Center. There were people who, in the Sandinista movement, who had embraced the anti-authoritarian, anti-repressive aspects um, of the Sandinista movement and became gradually disaffected as, the, um, as Sandinismo became um, much more associated with a personalistic dictatorship around Daniel Ortega. Ortega was elected again in 2006 and vowed to never lose a future race. He abolished presidential term limits. At one point, he embraced the private sector and brought economic growth. But then came a decade of what U.S. officials call sham elections and a crackdown on dissent. Then more intimidation. More than 2,000 NGOs and at least 50 media outlets shut down. Political opponents poised to run against him in the 2021 elections were arrested. Even if you can believe public opinion polls seem to desire a change, 
Um, Ortega is not going to allow that. And that is why he imprisoned so many people in advance of the November 2021 elections. But with their release, there's now renewed hope, however faint, for a return to democracy. I spoke recently with Felix Maradiaga, a former Nicaraguan presidential candidate and political prisoner who is now exiled in the U.S. He spent nearly two years in captivity, and we spoke about his experience inside one of the country's most notorious prisons. For years, even before I became a politician, I was a human rights defender, an academic. I, I focused most of my life in, um, in post-conflict reconstruction, uh, civil societies. I met with other former political prisoners around the world, but having experienced that myself uh, is, is, uh, is, even today, something hard to, to, to describe. Uh, I was in, um, in, a, in a small cell over the first days, to be exactly the first 84 days, I was officially disappeared in the sense that the government did not allow my family, my lawyers, or anyone know about my whereabouts. How were you able to endure that 84 days in solitary confinement, most of it spent in complete darkness. I, I, I used my faith as my source of strength, prayer, meditation, but mostly uh, uh, I was convinced that my wife had become a relentless advocate for my freedom and the freedom of all political prisoners, as we had agreed, because I knew that at some point I was going to be arrested, and also my convictions, my principles. I, I got into Nicaraguan politics to pursue uh, basic human rights in Nicaragua. On February 9th, the Ortega government released you and 221 other political prisoners. Take us back to that moment, that moment you realized that you were free. They asked us to dress in civilian clothing, and, and then we were put, put on a bus, handcuffed with our heads looking down, so we did not know what was the direction of the bus. Suddenly, uh, about 40 minutes later, we arrived at the Managua airport, and we were asked to sign a paper, a, a, basically a one-liner saying that we voluntarily would leave the country towards the United States. And only then we learned that we had been expelled from the country and sent into exile. However, we did not know that we had been stripped from our nationality. We learned that upon landing in, uh, in Washington. But watching, seeing U.S. diplomats traveling from Washington to Managua uh, to free us, to welcome us into an airplane, uh, is, it's, uh, is something that I can only define as truly the shining city on, 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 on the hill. So I, I need to, and I feel I need to thank the American people for welcoming us. What does your release signal or suggest about the stability of the Ortega regime? Does it signal weakness on their part? Absolutely. It signals that everything in his playbook has not worked so far. He tried, as he did with me and many others, to beat us. I was severely beaten in two occasions. He put us into prison, as he did, as he did with hundreds of political prisoners prior to our release. And we continued to fight in a nonviolent way. So he used banishment as his last resort. What are conditions in Nicaragua right now for, for everyday citizens living under the Ortega regime? From what I've learned, situation is very hard in the sense that everyone who issues an opinion, uh, everyone who tweets or to even uses private messaging to speak a private opinion is subject to arrest. The police has full control of, of, of Nicaraguan information and the way in which people exchange information. I think that it can only be compared to a, a sort of, of a tropical North Korea. Even private companies are requested to present the list of, of, uh, of, of people that have been involved in any type of uh, opinion against the government. Uh, newspapers are shut down. University students are expelled out of universities because of their political ideas. Um, it, it's, it's something unheard of in Latin America. And more recently, over 300 people are stripped from their nationality something that is against international law. The Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, called the release uh, of, of you and other prisoners. He says it's a constructive step towards addressing human rights abuses in this country. President Ortega has been in power for more than a decade. There's nothing to suggest that he's going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, what do you think comes next? Well, as we've seen in other cases of, of Latin America, uh, 
there's o there's always the possibility that dictators will remain there for a while. But I also know that there are many, many Nicaraguans who are committed to the our nonviolent, peaceful, democratic struggle for a new Nicaragua, a new Nicaragua in which even Sandinista supporters are uh, will be uh, welcome to be part of a new of, of a new nation. Nicaragua has had cycles of violence precisely because those who are former political prisoners, as Ortega himself was a prisoner in the 1970s, once they are free, they become uh, what they used to hate. In our case, we made it very clear that we want to break that cycle of violence. We want to establish freedom and democracy in our country. So we will go back and we will continue to work for that Nicaragua that we love. Felix Maradiaga, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. For the last several weeks, Judy Woodruff has been digging into one of the most pressing issues facing our nation, deep divisions and distrust in some American communities. Tonight, she begins with a look back at our recent history and some of her own to try to better understand the nature of the divides we face and why this moment feels different. It's part of her new series, America at a Crossroads. What do we want? Justice! From fights over our rights. Our rights! to defining who we are, what we believe, and what we teach our children. America is a house divided, and in many ways, it always has been. Would you agree with Governor Carter and Dr. Krebs that it's difficult to find qualified women? I first came to Washington in 1977 to cover President Jimmy Carter, the former governor and peanut farmer I'd followed as a local news reporter in Georgia, where I spent my teenage years. Judy. Mr. President, how concerned are you that any... I stayed here in Washington after Carter's landslide loss to Ronald Reagan in 1980 through six more administrations, trying to better understand how our government works, what motivates our leaders, and how their decisions affect hundreds of millions of Americans across the country. What happened today, Jim, was that a feud that has been simmering for weeks between Democrats and a group of conservative Republicans finally reached the boiling point. It all started... Over that time, I've watched partisan disagreements grow increasingly hostile. Always delighted to yield to our distinguished speaker. You deliberately stood on that well before an emptied house and challenged these people, and you challenged their Americanism. And it's the lowest thing that I've ever seen in my 32 years in Congress. The reforms... The reforms I'm proposing would not apply to those who are here illegally. How stupid are our leaders? How stupid are these politicians? You're looking for a fair process? You came to the wrong town at the wrong time, my friend. That means Congress doesn't vote. Well, I'm glad to see you. To the point that today there's an unwillingness to work with or often even talk to the other side to confront our shared challenges. The debt debate in Washington heated up again with the federal government set to hit its legal limit on borrowing in less than a week. Rising distrust by the public in our big institutions, from the federal government and public health officials to journalists. We are a nation that no longer has a free and fair press. Fake news is all you get. We've watched partisan battles that undermine our ability to deal with real problems. Much of the federal government was dark after Congress failed to agree on a stopgap funding bill. Shocking acts of violence directed at our political leaders. Giffords remained sedated three days after being shot in the head at point-blank range. For at least five minutes, gunshots crackled across the Northern Virginia baseball field where Republican members of Congress were practicing. U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, was severely beaten with a hammer this morning. And even attempts to subvert the machinery of democracy itself. Chaos erupted at the U.S. Capitol today when pro-Trump demonstrators breached barricades and pushed their way inside. 
Our current and former presidents of both parties acknowledge that something has changed over time. But we didn't have many people playing on, uh, on the fears of the American people. It's gotten too mean. It's gotten too uh, personal, gotten too divisive. So much of our politics has become a naked appeal to anger, fear, and resentment. That leaves us worried about our nation and our future together. I've long wanted to better understand what's been happening, the forces driving us apart, and what can be done to overcome them. And that's what this series, America at a Crossroads, will be about. To begin, I want to ask the most basic questions. How divided are the American people? And how different are divisions today from what we've seen before? Hello, Carol. How are you? Good to see you again. How to are you find doing? out what survey data show, I visited the Pew Research Center, the nonpartisan think tank in downtown Washington that studied public opinion, demographics, and social issues for decades. Carol Doherty and Jocelyn Kiley design and analyze polls that Americans take online each year, revealing how people think and feel about a range of issues and how those feelings change over time. The country is more divided, certainly along partisan lines than we've seen it. Uh, there have been divisions in the past along other lines, but this is a moment where the divisions are, are deeper than ever and the intensity of dislike for the other side, it's probably deeper than ever as well. I think it's fair to say on virtually every issue domain you can think about, the gap between Republicans and Democrats is bigger than it was 20 or 30 years ago. And so when I say that, I mean on, say, immigration, on abortion, on gun policy, on size of government. There have always been partisan gaps on these issues, but they're all wider than, than they used to be. That's true not just of the American public, but of its leaders as well. If you go back 30 years ago or so, there were a sizable share of Democrats in Congress who were more conservative than the most liberal Republican, mm -hmm. and vice versa, sizable share of Republicans who were more liberal than the most conservative Democrat. That hasn't been the case for nearly 20 years. It also shows up in presidential approval ratings, which have fallen sharply since the 1950s for both parties. It used to be that people would reserve their judgment about the, the new president. There'd be a lot of don't knows if you asked about a new president. And now people go to their partisan corners a lot more quickly in, in terms of evaluating a new president. So there's not as much of a honeymoon as we used to call it in the old days. Is that also due to people feeling part of their party right. and their party is opposed, so therefore they are opposed? Yeah, they are, exactly. I mean, you know, so, so for Biden and Trump, it's very, you know, people make their judgments very quickly, again, on the basis of their own partisanship. And there's another trend that really worries Doherty and Kiley, the degree to which people from one side not only disagree with, but actively dislike those on the other. It's not new that Republicans have an unfavorable view of the Democratic Party and vice versa. But these very unfavorables is what we're focused on here. And these are the sort of intensely negative. And you see that tripling just about between 1994 and 2022 on the Republican side and a, and a huge spike on the Democratic side as well. And so the shares of people who have this intense dislike for the opposing party has grown so much over the past 20 or 25 years. We have asked uh, for a while these questions about different traits. And you can see in this graphic that, for instance, 72% of Republicans say that Democrats are more dishonest than other Americans. And 64% of Democrats say the same about Republicans. Carol, it is striking. I mean, you look at the numbers, um, immoral. I know. <laughs> Just in 2016, 35% of Democrats thought Republicans were immoral. Today, it's 63. And Republicans, it's gone from 47 to 72. It is quite striking. And Jocelyn, from a, from a polling point of view, from a researcher, academic point of view, What's striking about that? I mean, we're talking, I don't know, 22, 20, less than 30 years this has happened. I think one way to think about this is, is that people have internalized partisan identity maybe in a way that, that we didn't really see, say, three decades ago. So 
it's about issues. It's about emotions. Um, and they kind of feed on each other, meaning as you see the other party further apart on issues, uh, you're less likely to socialize with them. You're less likely to have them in your friend groups. Um, and therefore, maybe you're a little bit more, more likely to have negative stereotypes about them. And that's what I wanted to ask you. Who's who, who's pushing this? Where, where, who's the instigator in all this? Is it, is it Washington pushing the American public, or is it the American public pushing Washington? Yes, <laughs> it's both of those it's things. It's, it's really, it really is both. And we can, th you can think about the role of the media in this too. Yes. Um, over this time period, we started to see more fragmentation of media, so so people can tend to be more likely to get their news from, from places that show them the kind of news that they're interested in. The rise in cable news, the rise in social media. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I, I think it would be very difficult to say this is, you know, this is top down or bottom up. It's a, it's a mix of both of those. Add to that list a country that is rapidly changing demographically, extremely high levels of inequality, and very low trust in government, regardless of who's in power. We talk about the ways the two partisan coalitions are growing more demographically distinct. They're also growing more uh, distinct in terms of their issue positions and, and then also in terms of uh, how they feel about one another. And each one of those contributes to each other. Is this pattern just going to continue? Are we just going to see this get more and more intense over time, this partisan antipathy, this partisan hostility, leading to perhaps negative consequences for the country? And this is what I'll be diving into over the next two years, trying to better understand the roots of our disagreements, where policy differences end, and where what you might call identity politics begin, and asking Americans from all walks of life how we can move forward towards solutions. Well, decades ago, we disagreed over things like the role of government or the size of government or what we wanted the government to be doing. And with those types of divisions, we can find a compromise. In my next report, I'll speak with political scientist Liliana Mason to try to understand how our identities and our politics became so intertwined and what that means for our challenges ahead. What we're seeing today is, is that the divide is much more about our feelings about each other, we are angry at one another. Democrats and Republicans don't trust one another. And these types of feelings are not the kind of thing we can compromise with. We're not For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Judy Woodruff in Washington. And we'll have Judy's second installment of America at a Crossroads next month, right here on the NewsHour. And that is the news hour for tonight. Join us again tomorrow for a look at the latest battleground over reproductive rights. I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. Thanks for being with us.